0: Welcome to Kaser cast episode twenty. Uh, not gonna, you're not gonna hear our jingle. I don't like the way it sounds anymore. Eventually, we'll record another one. Um, so no fancy music on the intro. I'm Jace Kaiser, as everybody knows. Chloe is with me today. Chloe, how are you doing?
1: I am doing great. I had the flu last weekend, and so I feel like a new human this weekend. Well, that's good. Yeah.
0: So today we have Ross Sudbeck on as our guest, and we'll get to him in a little bit. Uh, I know him because he used to work for PPG as a sales rep, uh, mostly did sold architectural paint, but he would also sold powder coating out of the one of the Lincoln stores, and so that's how I got to know him really well. Um, and then I now he owns his own um, independent sales rep business for selling coatings and mainly deals with tunemic so anytime that we're using uh, tunemic paints then we're usually ordering through him and i'm calling and getting pricing and asking him questions about a product that i probably haven't used before Um, and he's always a really good source of information and if he doesn't know the answer he tells me and then spends a day or two gathering information and then gets back to me with with the answers that i need so ross has always been uh, a good one and always in a good mood and, and willing to help. So looking forward to talking to him today in terms of how things are going at Kaser, um I don't know. We're just really busy. Like we have been, I was towards the end of 2021 kind of November, December um, was hope. We were kind of predicting and hoping that early 2021 or 2022 would would see us making some gains and not being quite as, uh, buried. And, uh, it started out a little bit that way, but it's ramped up real quick again. So we're, we're just trying as hard as we can to get everything done and keep our customers happy. And so it's, we're back into just the grinded out mode.
1: Has everybody in the world been sick? Is that what's going on right now?
0: Um we've had a little bit of sickness, a little bit of people being gone, but it's just, we're just really busy and, and we're lucky. I try to have perspective and remind myself, like we're lucky to be this busy. It's so much better to be busy than have nothing to do. Um, but it's just, it's just overwhelming. I would say it's not that, that and it takes a lot to overwhelm me. Um, but I think when you, roll my perfectionism into my day-to-day work and i'm wanting everything to be perfect and done on time and and keep customers happy and and no matter what get it done in a timely manner um it just you know it just gets overwhelming to a point so it's nothing i'm really proud of of the team and we're we're cranking out probably the most and best work that we've done ever and everybody is willing to work extra and stay late and come in on Saturdays. And so that's not it at all. It's just on my end, I, I've got to keep trying to um, figure out how we're going to do more, essentially. And um, that's challenging. So,
1: And really the only solution would be to somehow magically have, what, five extra people who've all already been trained?
0: Yeah, yeah, I think it all boils back down to what we talked a lot about last year. It's just hiring and more people. Um, obviously, um, the more people you have, the more stuff you can get done to a point. And then you, I would, you know, at some point, you need more equipment and and more space because you just can't cram any more people in a certain area. But so the more people and, and more equipment probably go hand in hand, um, or I guess working multiple shifts. Um, uh, so yeah, I'm just, I'm thinking about all that and, and trying to figure out the best way for us to, to continue to grow. Cause we're kind of bursting at the seams realistically right now.
1: In terms of space?
0: Yeah. I think in terms of space and in terms of the workload versus the amount of, uh, people we have on the team, which is the highest it's ever been, you know, and, and probably the most skilled it's ever been. So that's good like, so there's some real positives there. Uh, it's just, you know, it just seems like every, every other day, there's another project to be done or just for current customers that we work for, you know, they got more projects and they want us to do them and the customers are being patient and they're being respectful and, and most are communicating well. It's just, there's a lot, a lot to be done. And I feel like over time we've always grown slowly, but surely, and then, um, you know, maybe I just got. I feel like, you know, we talked a lot of, um, for a couple months there about like I felt like I was on defense and I wasn't on offense, and I think that's just that was, um, we were shorthanded, but also just like uncertainty of the COVID cause, and then supply chain, and and now it seems like some of that stuff is kind of subsiding. Um, Stuff's a little bit easier to get. Um, maybe labor isn't in as, in as quite short of supply, but, you know, and so then things are just starting to ramp up. And I think people's expectations are going up a little bit and people are getting excited about getting more stuff done sooner, you know? So it's just, it's kind of, it's, I feel like it's kind of like pent up demand still. Um Sure. Which will continue on. So it's, it's a, you can, I can be real negative about it and real overwhelmed and real upset and frustrated that just like that it's challenging, but it's a good challenge, you know. So you just got to stay working really hard to to every evening when I'm eating supper. Just like, you got to stay in the right mindset. You got to stay positive. You got to keep, You know, I like to solve problems. That's what I really like to do. So remember that. And like, this is just a, this is a problem to solve. Really, actually, a fun problem to solve if you have the right perspective on it. So. And
1: if anyone who's listening um, is looking for work or knows somebody who is, (laughs) please send them to us. Please, we beg you.
0: Yeah, and it's and it's not because we're we our team is falling apart. It's because we just we have more than we ever have, and everybody's doing really good, and we just. We, we need more help. Everybody on the team, I think, recognizes that. And, and everybody at Kaiser is, is looking for friends and acquaintances that they think would be good. And so, yeah, we're on a, we're definitely in, in hiring mode right now.
1: Did you have to fix anything this week?
0: Uh, I've got an issue with some oil leaking on an air compressor. I'm managing it, monitoring it. There's an oil line that has a slight leak in it. And uh, we got that ordered yesterday. I think Chloe was mainly dealing with making sure that's going to get here. So hopefully we see that um, early next week, and we can get that fixed up. Otherwise, nothing in particular that um, majorly went wrong. Trying to designing some parts for our ovens to try to help the longevity on them. Uh, with all the heat that we see around the burner box, I've got some some parts that always just wear out, and we have to replace a lot. And I'm trying, and they're difficult to replace, and require downtime. And so I'm trying to, with all the spare time I have, you know, I'm trying, I'm trying to design a few new parts before I have to order new again, um, because I know I'm just gonna, if I order the same old parts, they're just gonna wear out just as fast. So I'm trying to design something new for that. So I was trying to dedicate a little of my time to that this week. I was only successful like one of the days, but.
1: Right. It's hard when you're always on your heels to be able to think ahead like that.
0: Yeah, definitely. So do you got, uh, we've been, been cranking up social media. Um, I feel like that we're getting, we're getting back in the groove of themes because I've been, I did a a little bit better job of recording some stuff that's more theme oriented instead of making Chloe just go off of scraps. Um, so I'm excited about some of the themes that are coming up. Uh, you got any, anything, social media you've been thinking about a lot lately?
1: One thing we've been trying to do a better job of is answering comments when we get them. Um, and I know how difficult that can be to do in a timely way, uh, but I don't think that matters. You know, even if it takes a couple days, make sure that you're responding to people who comment on your stuff. Um, and if you are someone who has commented on Kazer stuff and you haven't heard back right away, that's usually because I'm the one answering and I often have to... Um, check with Jace to make sure I'm not giving you wrong information so there's a process going on behind the scenes we're not ignoring you Um, we are trying to be better about responding to questions in particular Um, but if you are getting engagement on your social encourage it as much as possible respond to people that builds trust it boosts engagement um, and it will help with your visibility
0: I agree what's your uh, so we've been posting more on TikTok uh, Abby and one of our new hires who's helping in the office uh she's helping a little bit with social and that's allowing us to post on TikTok more mainly because she's at Kaiser every day and can record good new fresh content that uh is easier to use on TikTok what's kind of your feel so far on just we've been posting more do you see more engagement you know I hear a lot you know I listen to Gary Vee a lot and he says that you know TikTok is is really good right now. Post as much as you can. What's kind of your thoughts on that?
1: Yeah, you know, I'm always I'm always weighing quality over quantity. Um, so on one hand, like, yeah, you can make the argument that if you're posting 10 TikTok videos a day, like numbers-wise, you're bound to get more views. I'm not sure I buy that, um, particularly if you're talking just for the sake of talking and don't actually have anything to say. However... Having Abby help us with TikTok um, really has helped our quantity output and our quality output because she actually is at Kaiser and can, you know, track what's happening in real time um, and make content based off of that, which we desperately needed. I think it also helps that she's, you know, 10 years younger than me. Um, (laughs) If you have someone doing TikTok, they should be young. Um, That's great. So she brings that to the table, which is fantastic. Um,
0: It didn't dawn on me that she's that much younger. I knew that, but... I, yeah. And it's not that I, I don't think that she's old. I guess I just think that you're young. So I don't know.
1: <laughs> <laughs> well, she is young. I am old. Um, I'm very happy that she has taken over our TikTok presence. I do think it helps. Uh, but to answer your question, I you know, do as much as you can without running out of things to say, is what I would say. I think people can tell when you're just trying to get in their face and aren't actually adding a value.
0: That makes sense. All right. Well, I think it's time to bring in our guest, Ross Sudbeck. I know him from way back when he worked at um, PPG. I started to get to know him when we were buying powder. Um, Now he owns and runs his own company, Modern Coating Solutions, and I don't deal with them quite as much as I used to, but um, still from time to time we talk about special projects. So how are you doing this afternoon, Ross? Thanks for joining us. I'm doing very well,
2: Jace. I appreciate having me on. Thank you.
1: So just to jump right in, Ross, I would um, I'd love to start talking about Modern Coding Solutions, what you can tell us about the company and what your role is there.
2: Okay. Um, well, I am the owner of Modern Coding Solutions and what we are, we're an independent rep agency. Uh, Our home base here is in Omaha, Nebraska. Um, started in February, well, we started the company in February, 2020, um, prior, it was Schmidt Greteman, And then after that, it was SGA coding consultants. And a lot of our customers still in the Midwest here still kind of know us as that former company, but there was a managed, or there was a, one of the owners of SGA, uh, left to pursue other endeavors and the other one retired. So I had to open a new LLC, um, named it modern coding solutions, Uh, Primarily, we uh, sell Tenemic coatings, which is a high-performance coating manufacturer out of Kansas City. Um, We can also sell other things, but like I said, the majority of our day time uh, is doing Tenemic coatings. So, we have, our area includes Nebraska, South Dakota, and Iowa, and I'm the rep here for Nebraska and part of Iowa. We have a Another rep, Toby Carr, up in Sioux City, he handles South Dakota, and another rep, Josh Brady, out uh, in Iowa City, and he handles the eastern half of Iowa. And have a couple uh, office gals here, um, Christy and Maria, who, uh, again, kind of get our orders out, track orders, um, do a lot of miscellaneous work here in the office. So that's kind of where it started, and um, again, relatively new, um, but that's kind of how Modern Codings began.
1: So, why Tanemic products specifically? Is there something about them um, that you like, or is it just based on the industries you serve? That's what's in demand.
2: Well, yeah, that's mostly the industries we serve. Um, okay. Kind of a backstory with that. I did get into Tanemic coatings on my brother Rory. Uh, I was working at PPG. He got me in with SGA at the time, uh, doing Tanemic. So, I did that for a couple of years, and then Rory left and um, just took over again the agency or had to change names, but took it over. Um, it's been great. Um, you know, it's something new for me. Um, prior, I was doing some high performance, mostly architectural. So I looked at it as a, you know, a big change. Um, but it was somewhere I wanted to go. Um, and yeah, you know, Tanemic for what we do, the different markets we serve, uh, Tanemic is you know the primary high performance used.
1: And what markets do you serve?
2: Uh, the, the four or five markets we serve, the main one is, uh, water tanks or a lot of people call them water towers, uh, mostly municipal tanks for cities and towns. Um, but also could, you know, include private towers, say at a food plant, if they have one there, uh, wastewater plants as well. Again, mostly municipal city plants, um, you know, it could be the clarifiers at a plant, the digesters, um, it uh, could be uh, rake arms, whatever else. Um, we also uh, do architectural buildings. Um, you know, a lot of this is correctional facilities, you know, schools, bathhouses, pools. Um, vet humane societies is a big one for us. Um, also do, you know, say commercial kitchens at a college or a high school, um, airport hangars. Also, shot, a lot of shop primers can kind of fall under architectural for us. Um, we also do food and beverage, and that could be corn milling plants, uh, meat packing, dairies, ethanol, uh, breweries, or pet food plants. And then we also do the industrial market. And for Tonemic, the industrial market's kind of a general term. That could be tank farms for petro, uh, power plants, you know, coal mining plants. Um, and they, you know, that's pretty much the five, I would say, the five markets we serve with our high-performance coatings.
0: So take us back a little. So now that's what you're dealing with now. Mm-hmm. I know that that's a lot different than what you used to deal with when, <laughs> when you worked at PPG and, and other places get let, why don't we rewind to when you first kind of started, um, get for one, how did you get into the coding industry to begin with? And then how has it kind of evolved with the different types of projects that you've seen that you've probably seen, more than most now that you've done and sold so many different kinds of paint. So I'm curious
2: about that. Yeah. So I started, you know, how I got, got into coatings was my dad um, was a painter and he had been painting for many years. I think he started when he was 15. Um, so he was painting. Um, so I worked part-time in high school, um, summers mostly cause I was doing sports throughout the year and I would do painting. Um, for him and it was but i'll be honest mostly it was sanding taping so like i always said if you wanted to door jam sanded i was your man <laughs> i did a lot of that uh and went to college at unk um then after college i graduated i think in 2004 uh went back painting for a little bit because i didn't i'm not sure exactly what town i wanted to live in and didn't have my job lined up just yet so back to painting for a while and then I joined Sherwin-Williams, uh, I think it was the fall of 2004 or 2005, maybe I don't quite remember. Um, went in the MTP program management training, uh, started in Omaha, went to Lincoln. I was a manager on Kearney for a while, and then made a switch to PPG, um, and then moved to Omaha there, where I was a manager at one of their stores, and then became the Lincoln, Nebraska sales rep for PPG, and that's where I met UJ's. And then uh, went to, again, to Kneemaker SGA at the time. And throughout most of that, though, with Sherman and PPG, it was architectural paints, you know, wall paints, uh, trim paint, uh, exterior paints. Uh, Dabbled a little bit in high performance at the time. Uh, Until I got to PPG, there was no powder. So that was, you know, powder was a 4 letter word to me at the time when I was with PPG until I started to learn more about it. A little bit of high performance with PPG. So, yeah, I've kind of... And rounded in all sorts of coatings, uh boy, just about everything you could imagine. Um but yeah, that's where I kinda started and So you
0: said your dad painted when you were growing up. Did did, mm-hmm. did was it a small company like painting houses or did he do commercial projects?
2: Um, actually, he was the right-hand man. Um, it was Miller Painting in Hardington, Nebraska. And um, a gentleman, Tom Miller, owned it. My dad was his right-hand man for all the years. He eventually bought it out. Um, but okay. at, that, at that time, I was in college, so I wasn't working at that point. But, yeah, they so were doing mostly commercial work at w- the time.
0: When you graduated college, I'm just curious because, like, when I graduated college and my dad had a painting company, then one of my main options was to go work for him. Um, Mm -hmm. did you ever consider like doing that full time and instead of going the sales rep route or why why did you kind of go the sales rep route?
2: Well you know I thought about that at the time maybe going back there and trying it uh, you know keep painting and I just decided to try something else in coatings you know Um, I don't think um, working in that business would have been a bad thing but I think sometimes I just want to stay indoors a little more than being out on the hot summer days. Okay, fair enough. (laughs) Just being honest there.
0: And where was that? You said Harding? Is that what you said?
2: Hardington, Nebraska, up in the northeast corner, um, kind of by Yankton and Sioux City.
0: Oh, okay. So it's quite a ways up there. So is that where you're from then? that where you grew up?
2: Yep, that's where I grew up. Uh, Most of their work um, during the summers I've worked there was in Sioux City, uh, yanked in, or, you know, they might do a little bit in Sioux Falls here and there. Um, but yeah, the most of the commercial work was up around, um, that area.
0: Cause that's where my, my dad grew up in Pender, which is up in that area too. So yep. Oh
2: yeah. Very familiar with that.
1: So this is an ignorant question and possibly a can of worms. Um, but for those of us who don't know, um, how, what is the difference between an architectural coating and like the high performance coating that you would put on a water tower, for instance?
2: Well, in architectural coding, you know, I sometimes say, you know, that could be for, you know, trim paint in your house. Um, high performance coding, uh, a lot of times I just equate it to we're the chapstick, not the lipstick. And when I say that, people seem to understand it better. You know, we are there to protect um, steel, concrete, whatever else. I mean, I'll be honest, a lot of times our stuff doesn't look pretty, um, but it's not meant to look pretty so i felt like when i was in the architectural world and somebody would be painting their trim in their house or cabinets whatever whatever i mean that's also there to protect don't get me wrong when you paint something like a cabinet door you want it to, uh, you're protecting the wood underneath but it also needed to look pretty so i have always kind of thought that was one major difference when people ask architectural coatings versus high performance um you know we we do serve a little bit of OEM markets, but you know we're never going to be the thin film type urethane company where it almost has to look like a car hood. That's just kind of not what we do. We're more there to protect the steel, concrete, and just prevent rust or any sorts of corrosion. So, And I mean, there could be other ways to explain between the two, but that's always kind of the one I've used in the past. I like that. That's a good...
1: Yeah, I like that too, actually. I like that a lot. Um, So I'm imagining that there was a bit of a learning curve when you started to get into the high-performance market. How do you go about educating yourself on those products and what they're for?
2: You know, there is a big-time learning curve, and the coatings industry is an interesting one because you never stop learning. There's always a new problem that's going to present itself. Uh, Most of them are head-scratchers. A lot of days, frustrating days. At the end of the day, I think, why couldn't I sell drywall and light bulbs? I don't think those would be as complicated. Um, I feel that a lot of days, but um, yeah, most of the way to learn, uh, most of the time I find out is just ask other people who've done it. Uh, One thing about Tonemic that's been really beneficial to my learning is a lot of um, people in their tech service group are former applicators, whether that be flooring applicators or former tank painters. Um, so they're really good about, you know, asking questions about a product. Hey, it's doing this or it's doing that. Uh, what do you think might be going on? Give you some pretty good advice. It's usually not on a data page, um, but that's one big way to learn. I've, or I've learned um, also just educating yourself online. Um, you know, LinkedIn is great. YouTube is great for uh, learning a little bit here and there on codings. Um, and then again, just talking to other reps too. Other tenemic reps, for instance, that helps out a lot. i have been doing a lot longer than I have, um, and then you know, just reading literature too, whether it's nice books or whatever else. Uh, I cry concrete books just to educate myself on the different coatings we have. We have to offer.
0: I feel like that the industrial coatings suits you well because you always like when you were at PPG and was were mainly the architectural rep there, but you were selling me powder, and that's more on their. think they call it their true finish side which is more more industrial coating side you always seem interested in that and if you didn't know an answer you would go ask people and figure it out and then you would keep adding more and more knowledge so it kind of made sense um when you told me that you were going to do the more more industrial coatings and leaving ppg because it it seemed like you're you were always
2: interested in that yeah, I agree. Um, they are interesting, the industrial or high performance coatings. Um, and yeah, I, I agree, Jason what you said. I was trying to learn more um, at PPG. And you know, one big thing I found in high performance coatings is you have to not be afraid to tell a customer you just don't know the answer. Um, I found, you know, other reps or my competition, if you just give a, you know, kind of a BS answer and it comes back to you you. lose a lot of cred- credibility. I've always said in high performance coding, somebody's usually, usually has the answer. You just gotta go find it. Um, but yeah, that's, it's, it's always an interesting deal with codings. Like I say, it's different scenarios present themselves every single day. What, you know, you can use the same product one day, it worked great. Next day you have fish eyes or scaling or something. So again, always a challenge every day.
0: So when you were doing the architectural stuff, you were mainly dealing with, you know, commercial and residential painting contractors, mm-hmm. probably the same ones over and over for the most part. And then industrial coating side, it, do you have a lot of repeat customers or do you get a lot of random pop-up one-time customers that, that you have to help and haven't dealt with before and really not familiar with what they do or, or do you, is pretty much everybody just regular, and always orders the same stuff?
2: Uh, For the most part, that's a great question. Yes, they are a lot of repeat customers. Now, the one thing I will say with industrial coatings that, yeah, our our customer base, it's a lot of the same people. You just can't jump into industrial coatings. I always felt like residential repaint or new res, um, you could have, you know, the main man of a company break away and start painting houses. That's not quite the case in industrial coatings. It's, you know, a lot of capital. Um, to get your business started up. The equipment's expensive. The blasting equipment's expensive. Um, so we just don't have new customers or new prospects pop up every, you know, here or there. Um, but yeah, it is a lot of the same customers um, over and over again. Um, and don't get me wrong, we do have some newer ones um, that might dive into trying, say, to do a secondary containment um, at a, you know, say a power plant or something. Um so I, do, I guess we do get a few new ones, but even those are usually established companies just trying to do a, a kind of different type of project. But, uh, yeah, a lot of these, like I said, a lot of the wastewater painting contractors or tank painting contractors around have been around quite a while. That makes sense.
0: Mm-hmm. So when you... Compare like Kaiser and our size, like we blast and we can paint. And I have always felt like we have pretty big paint rooms, but in that, in when I compare it to other like manufacturing type facilities, metal fabrication facilities, we have big stuff. But when, when we're going to do like really big beam projects, really big steel. And then I start thinking about some of the um, customers or industries that you provide coatings for, like, water towers and i mean could be like huge i mean we're not in the right area but could be like big ships and stuff if we were down by the coast and things so Mm -hmm. what on your since you've been doing the high performance stuff what types of facilities have you seen i assume they're one scale bigger than what we have at kaiser when we're talking about the size of the stuff we're doing or is it a lot of this a lot of the Things that you see—it's industrial coating still going on, walls and floors and ceilings in buildings.
2: Well, yeah, the, some of the you know, our customers too are fabrication shops. Um, you know, a few OEMs here and there. Um, but yeah, a lot of it I agree is on a bigger scale. Um, we do sell. We have a couple customers who do tank fabrication, uh, water tank fabrication, and that is quite something to see the huge plates of steel. You know, being hung as they go through the blast booth or wheel abrator. Um, so, yeah, that we have customers kind of like um, yours, Jace, um, on a bigger scale, though, they're just doing bigger structures, okay. you know, bigger, bigger that. Um, but a lot of it is a bit of the same of what you're doing to a point. I will give you this. Yours is usually a lot more organized. <laughs> well, that's good to good hear. <laughs> yeah, you do a phenomenal job of that and very clean shop. So um, I'm always appreciative of that. Um, But yeah, we do have a lot of customers again, kind of like Kaser, blasting and coating, just on a larger scale. And again, they're just doing larger structures for the most part.
1: You mentioned a while back about fisheyes and scaling. Um, Are those the types of problems that a customer might call you about, or are there others? What are some of the common ones that would require you to do a site visit?
2: Uh, Some of the main ones I would say are adhesion issues. Um, That's probably the biggest one we get. Now, when adhesion issues, usually it's on a water tank, for instance. Um, Typically on the outside, not on the inside. Um, That would require me to do a site visit and also climb the tower itself. Um, We get that a lot, um, sometimes in the fall. And typically, what happens with you know those type of adhesion issues on a water tank is the tank painter may have uh, pushed his limit, uh, pushed his luck a little bit, I should say, and was painting you know colder temperatures or um, when there's a lot of humidity and dew out. Um, we get that one from again quite a bit, if I'd say, out of the problems we have, and also floors. We sell quite a few floor coatings. Um, floors or we that's a podcast in itself to discuss floors and and their issues Um, but we do get quite a few you know and that's a lot with moisture coming through the concrete um bubbling whatever else Um, but I would always say you know tanks adhesion issues um floors with moisture issues those are a couple of the couple that come right to mind I mean we will get here and there um fabrication shop call us and say hey our primer we got from you is not sticking what's going on uh, you know typically that type of issue I, I would go to their shop and that's usually fixed rather quickly when I peel our product up and I have a black finger underneath from all the carbon that didn't come off um, but yeah I mean that would, those would just be a few of the main kind of problems I would say um, we do get some fish on in from here and there uh, not that often though um, we get a little bit there. Those are, I always say iron's a head scratcher though, when it does come, those are tough to figure out. Um, yeah, those would be some of the few, the main ones that we uh, would deal with. When that you, would, that would involve a site visit.
0: When you're going to do those site visits, do you have to, or maybe, I mean, maybe it's not necessarily because of an issue, but maybe it's a big project that requires a lot of inspection. Usually there's certified coding inspectors that are involved in that, but um, do you have to get involved in any of the film thickness readings or like uh, holiday testing, where they're trying to test if there's conductivity down to the substrate or anything like that?
2: Yeah, we get involved in that, and I always I uh, got a couple of tool bags ready of tools that you know a moments notice to throw in my car and get going to a uh, a complaint. Um, you know, just a few things I would say when I have to go to complaints. Things I bring would be a putty knife, a box knife, uh, a RH tester, a temp gun, micrometer, dry mill gauge, you know, hammer chisel because sometimes on floors we gotta hammer out a piece of that coating and concrete. Uh, you have to bring a lot of baggies, um, sandwich bags, to take samples. Um, and you know, those are a few things that, you know, we we don't necessarily get too much into the holiday testing. What's, what's great about working with Tanemic when it comes to holiday testing, whether low voltage or high voltage, or, you know, honestly, if the, uh, if the complaint is serious enough, they send their tech people up here uh, to do an assessment as well along with us, which is a, a ton of help. All of them are NACE 3 certified. Um but I do always have to tell our customers wherever else, when we I mean, truly we're we're coding consultants, but we're not stamped inspectors. so that's that's a huge difference. Some people think we're because we're there, we're inspectors, but you know we're we're not. We're just giving you our opinion of what's going on. And usually we're getting samples to send in to Nemic. Um, you know, I will give this to Tenimic, they have a phenomenal uh, lab down there. Um, kind of to play detective of sorts to you know we send in samples. They can look at it, tell us what coating it was, if it was a tenemic coating or if it was somebody else's, if it was an acrylic, a urethane, an epoxy, you know, how many layers are there. Um, you know, some coatings companies invest a lot in marketing. I would say tonemics invest a lot in uh, their lab and research. So that's always nice to have that in your back pocket when you have to do some assessments here and try to figure out what may have happened on a job site.
1: That's so interesting. I love the idea of... Um... Sending samples into the lab for analysis. That's so, I don't know, exciting.
2: <laughs> well, you know, and it, and it is interesting sometimes to get the results back. Um, you know, I'll give you an example. I sent one in the summer of some exterior samples that were um, coming off. And it wasn't even a Tanema coating. I was just doing it to help out the engineer. And as it had, they had fifty mils of coating on there. Five I mean, zero. Fifty Fifty five, uh, five zero. Five zero. <laughs> wow.
1: That's insanely it, it, high. Am I wrong?
2: What's that? That's insanely high, right? That is insanely high. And it was kind of funny. It was 50 mils. And when I asked the owner of the building, I said, when was this originally built? He said, 1960. Uh, and I said, has anybody ever, you know, blast this off? Started? He goes, nope, we painted every five or six years. And I thought, well, the results, they definitely showed that. So. <laughs> Yeah. But no, it's it's great to get those reports back. And uh, again, it 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 helps out me or any other probably rep for that matter of kind of figuring out what's going on because you just don't really know what's all on that sample. I mean, there's a lot of, there could be contamination that you just can't see, for instance, that's causing the issue. So um, yeah, it's, I mean, that's part of our problem solving process. So
1: what percentage of the time would you say that you get a concrete definitive answer for your clients and what percentage of the time is it kind of a mystery that they have to you know, solve through trial and error?
2: I would say, boy, that's a great question. I would say 75% to 80, we get a pretty good answer. Um, and the other, say 20%, we get, well, I should say we always get an answer of the time, it's pretty concrete, like it's this. Um, 20%, it could easily be this issue, but there's also other factors that maybe it couldn't. And that's one thing with coatings, when you're getting into it is, you know, sometimes it's just a head scratcher, like I said earlier, you just don't know what may have went wrong. Um, And it's kind of crazy, you could do the same process the next day, and it would be fine. And it's just, it's always an odd one. Sometimes it's frustrating for me as a rep because I want to help out the customer. We want to help out the owner. Um, Sometimes you really don't have a great answer. You have a few scenarios, what may have happened and opinions, but maybe not the right one. Um, But you sometimes I feel it's got to start over and move on. And again, you could code it the next day and it'd be just fine. So, but most of the time, I think we have, uh, when we send samples and Tanemic gives us a pretty good idea of what may have happened.
1: That's a that's a higher resolution rate than I expected. That's really good, honestly.
2: Yeah, um, yeah with the amount of equipment they have, they can, they can dial down what may have happened. I mean, again, they can even find out if you miscatalyzed or didn't put enough Part B in. Uh, they can even look at that and say, you know, that may have caused the issue too. Or put somebody else's thinner in, you know, we're always supposed to use tenemic thinners, but I know on job sites some, somebody might grab another person's thinner and put it in, but they can even tell me that too of, hey, they put you know, a product X is thinner in there and that's, that's made it blister.
1: Wow.
0: So you've always been, I feel like your personality type is great for a sales rep. And anytime that I've ever been upset or frustrated with whatever the case may be, whether we got the wrong product, didn't have it in time, have an issue, whatever. And anybody that knows me or has sold product to me knows that I can get real feisty real quick. When things, when things are not going right, but you, you always have responded well and calmly how I'm asking for like advice for myself for when I have to deal with my customers that are upset about something, um, because my initial reaction is to just get as frustrated as they are, but you are, have always been, um, right away you just kind of diffuse the situation how do you how do you do that i mean is it just a personality trait or if that's something that you've had to work on over time of how you handle those high stress scenarios when customers are calling really upset
2: well you know i think it's been personality and pretty easygoing Uh, but i've always kind of felt you got to be in somewhat agreement with the customer just because i get it he's upset um You know, he's trying to, he's maybe on a deadline or, you know, his guys are sitting around on their hands, you know, waiting for, say, coatings or whatever else. So I don't get too worked up because, again, that just works both of us or, you know, me or the customer up if we both get worked up. I don't think initially there's ever any fingers to be pointed right away. Um, A lot of times you don't know the whole story. And I also find out, you know, I might get an upset customer calling me, let's say on a Monday or wherever else, like I'm having issues, where's my paint, or it doesn't matter. Um, usually 24 hours later, people all calm down. It seems to be okay. So I'm always thinking there's no reason for me to get worked up about it either. You know, and a lot of times, especially with this resin shortage going on, the failure to tell us orders or whatever else causes a lot of issues, and you know a lot of times I feel with some of our customers I think if you just would have told me we would have had this, but it's just there's no reason I feel to get worked up about it um I always say give it twenty four hours, let's talk again, and usually the situation's a lot calmer then
0: that's a good that's a good tip,
2: yeah.
1: So you mentioned a resin shortage. Has that been the biggest uh, result of COVID and the supply chain issues? Are there any other products you're short on? Can you tell us a little bit about all that?
2: Yeah, I can definitely talk at length about the resin shortage. Um, That began uh, last year, started in the spring. Uh, You know, and COVID was already uh, wreaking a bit of havoc on getting resins. Uh, and then the freeze that happened down in Texas, I think that was the spring of last year, that was, I would say, icing on the cake to uh, have the resin shortage. But it's definitely been challenging. Um, the second half of 2021 was definitely a challenge, coming into work every day. Uh, me and my guys just said we're firefighters, put on our firefighting hat the way we went, because you were chasing coatings, tracking coatings. Uh, talking to the manufacturer every hour of when resin's gonna be in. And you know, what really made it frustrating was they didn't have any answers either of when they were gonna get resin. It was just a really frustrating deal all around. Um, some resins were easier to get than others. I'm sure you guys probably experienced it started with epoxies, kind of went into acrylics, now is in urethanes. Um, so, yeah, it's definitely been a challenge, but it's made us think on our toes a little bit better and think outside the box. Um, as I, as I say, I've used the word MacGyver more than I'd like to, the last few months, um, having to come up with new situations on the fly or new systems on the fly. Um, but yeah, it's definitely been, it's, it's probably posed the biggest challenge, um, the resin situation in COVID than I've ever seen in my 18 years in the, in the coatings industry. Um, You know, whether, again, not being able to get product or when you're trying to sell to, you know, architects, engineers, and they're all working from home and you can't do lunch and learn presentations or see them in person, that's challenging. Um, Some of our markets, like food and beverage, when COVID hit, they all scattered, wouldn't allow any visitors in their plants because of COVID. Um, That was very challenging to keep, uh, you know, find new work, find new opportunities when you can't see the decision makers. Um, So yeah, I, I mean, the resin situation and COVID have definitely uh, affected us quite a bit, quite a bit.
1: So, the resin issue I mean, I don't know if you know the answer to this, but do we think that it's like a production, like a labor shortage problem, or is it more of a shipping and receiving up problem?
2: You know, we've heard both. Um, it was definitely a production problem for a while. Um, and then there's not you know, enough drivers. We're just experiencing a labor shortage in this country, uh, not enough drivers to get the resin to the manufacturers. Uh, you know a lot of resin comes from China, and the ports are backed up. again, not enough back to not enough drivers to drive you know the resin from the port to the manufacturers. Um, again, I kind of mentioned too, the freeze in Texas with all those petroleum lines, a lot of uh, the derivative of petroleum um, is what goes into coating. So when all those lines froze down south, they're you know Texas is ready for that type of stuff. So when the pipes unfroze, they inspect them you know mile by mile. That slowed things down tremendously. Um, some of the good news is, though, in the last few months, uh, we've heard that it's getting a little bit better. Um, instead of resin manufacturers throwing their hands in the air and saying we don't know we're going to get you stuff, we at least kind of know a timeline. Um, but with that getting resin, and now we're Tonemic um, for instance, you know, very backed up. Um, we've had lots of orders, but you know, I have so many bats to make product in, so it's kind of a picking and choosing. Uh, the order of priority to make it. So we're, I mean, we're not out of the woods of this deal by any means and things are still delayed a bit, but it's definitely not as bad as it was at the end of last year.
1: That's hopeful. That's good to hear.
2: Yeah, it's definitely good to hear.
1: So obviously COVID has been, you know, extraordinary in a lot of ways. um, But that aside, when you look back on your 18 years doing this, are there any trends that you've seen in the industry? How has it evolved in your time there? Um, can you kind of talk big picture about that?
2: Sure. You know, some of the stuff that's evolved, um, I will say, I'll start with maybe a technology thing. Um, water-based coatings, uh, definitely making a charge. Um, just better, better water-based technology out there. Um, you know, whether that's, uh, you know, I don't sell them now, but when I was at one of my, the other companies, uh, we'd sell water-based uh, wood sealers and wood lacquers and that was I was just really surprised how good a water-based uh, you know like say sealer would be on your trimmer cabinets um, and Tonemic's had a lot of good success with some newer water-based coating so definitely seen that evolve um, you know another thing kind of in the industry too uh, definitely l- less coating manufacturers every year um you know every year some of the bigger ones are buying them up at the end of the year and getting bigger and bigger um so definitely don't see a, uh as many independent coating manufacturers they're all kind of going under you know one umbrella or two umbrellas out there so um, definitely kind of noticed that throughout my 18 years um you know another thing too which is i wouldn't say necessarily coatings but in the last 18 years i've noticed a lot of um you know, owners of businesses, managers of businesses are younger and younger. I uh, definitely noticed that at my age, a lot of um, my customers are also my age and they're taking over, whether that be their parents' uh, business or you know, relatives' business. So um, a lot of the older um, older owners and managers are retiring. So I definitely noticed kind of a change in the age of who I'm dealing with. Um, and then also another thing, the industry's evolving a lot more social media stuff, too. Um, or oh, if you would ask me 15 years ago, as much information I get off LinkedIn, I think you're crazy. But now, um, I know it's not just me, but a lot of people in the coding industry get a lot of their information and learn off LinkedIn. Um, that's just so much different than what it was, I would say, even 10 years ago. So those, and those are just some of the different things that I've definitely seen in the coding's world and the work world, I should say, that have definitely changed in the last 18 years.
1: That's so interesting. And hearing you talk even earlier about how you kind of got your start in the industry and how you um, made the shift from architectural to high performance and had to learn all of this, you know, on YouTube and on your own and stuff. Jason Mm -hmm. and I have been talking a lot lately about the fact that um, there really isn't a lot of formalized education available for the finishing industry. So I'm wondering how these, you know, young business owners um, are going about acquiring their knowledge. Like what advice do you have for someone who, say, wants to start a powder coating operation and doesn't really know
2: even where to begin? Well, that's a great question, you know, and I will be honest, I'm relatively new to owning a business. Um, I've always worked for somebody to last two years, so um, working for someone and then owning your own business is definitely two different things. Um, and that's two different sets of skills there, too. Um, so, you know, if you were to open your own powder shop or high-performance shop, you know, one thing I would suggest is talk to Somebody who's done it, definitely, and been successful at it. Um, You know, a lot of, I I mean, I notice even with my customers, a lot of the owners are more than happy to give advice, um, you know, on owning a business, hiring, firing, whatever else, different trials and tribulations they went through. Um, So that's always a great wealth of knowledge for me on owning, uh, owning a business. You know, and I would say with the coding stuff, um, that's, again, asking people who've done it. A lot of my knowledge, too, with codings, as I said, comes from um, whether it be Tanimic, for instance, their tech people, or uh, even some of my customers. Um, some of my customers, when you get in, and it could be anybody, it's when you get on a level of trust with them and you have an issue with a product, and you know, a lot of them, I just get advice from them, like, hey, this is doing this, what do you think's happened?" And they would tell me, well, when I have done whatever project, it did it as well. So that's where I get a lot of, information as well when it comes to the coding part of things but again i would say when it comes to owning and running a business and you can just find some good mentors out there who are willing to help you get you started um, their experience is invaluable because they've been through it they've done it they've made mistakes and it's great to hear you know what they what's worked and what hasn't worked for those people so you don't do the same thing
1: i i don't know if you answered this already but what did you major in in college
2: uh, business management and then also marketing.
1: Oh, okay. So would you say that that was helpful in your career?
2: I would say yes, the business management, um, wasn't bad. And I stayed one extra year of college to get a marketing degree. And I would say the marketing degree was very helpful um, because my, my last year of college, when I was in marketing, all, pretty much every class was working in teams. I I don't even think we really had any individual work whatsoever. So that taught me a lot of different dynamics, uh, of working with different people, um, you know, who's contributing, who's not, what kind of different strengths do they bring to the table. So, um, you know, and for the most part, every job I've had, whether it be store manager, sales rep, it's a team effort. So, yeah, I mean, I would think that definitely prepared me for what I'm doing.
1: That's great. Yeah, I imagine you run into uh, all types of personalities in your job, kind of like Jace was talking about a minute ago.
2: Oh, yeah. Yeah. You know, in our different customer bases, are all different, I would say. You know, uh, a guy running a blasting powder shop or coating shop like Jace is uh, the one kind of customer that has a lot of different needs, different personality, as opposed to a tank painter who's on site. Uh, they're definitely a different breed as well, Um and that goes down line. You know, our flooring contractors, they act differently as well. So you are diff- you're definitely de- dealing with different personalities all day long.
1: Sure. So um, I guess I don't really know how to ask this, but what do you need from your customers? Um, so how can we, Kaiser included, help you to help us? Is there any like overarching advice you can give?
2: Well, with the current situation, I tell all my customers right now, um, more communication is better. Um, whether it's you are bidding a job or you're, you know, you got a job or you may have a job. Um, right now that's really what I need from my customers. And I've been telling them a lot that with this resin situation, if we can forecast, even if you don't get the job, the forecasting still helps tremendously to have product when the, if this job happens, when it does happen. Um, you know, I, that's one of the big things now um, that I would say that's probably the biggest thing, just communication between each other, um, you know, and doing things right. Um, I say being honest, if you can't blast something, just tell me you can't blast it and I will give you a different product. Don't tell me you're going to blast it when you truly can't. Um, so I'd say, you know, just open, open lines of communication helps my job out uh, quite a bit and it's more important now than ever to uh for me and my customers and us talking back and forth um so again we don't run into a situation where the job's going to start we don't have product because we didn't forecast and we weren't prepared because um, that that isn't good for anybody
1: yeah that makes sense
2: yeah i feel that exact um, same thing with
0: our customers in terms of <laughs> scheduling and trying yeah. to, trying to communicate and i've always felt like that coatings is the last thing in line so we're always in a hurry for it no matter what and for whatever reason everybody struggles to try to plan ahead and schedule but now it's like extremely crucial that we do it
2: yeah i I agree jace you know when i was in the architectural world i always felt like the the plumber could take his time the electrician could take his time but unfortunately the painter was under the gun and in high performance it kind of works the same you know that owner's waiting to move in or get, you know, refill his tank for the town, whatever else. So, uh, yeah, always the last guy there is usually the painter, high-performance coder. And, yeah, it's important we get product and we get done, you know, get him, him or her stuff so they get done in a timely manner so they can either move on to the next site or turn the asset or building back over to the owner.
1: Kind of just to wrap this up, unless Jace, you have any other questions, um, Ross? I was wondering if there were any myths, bad habits, or misinformation um, about anything coatings, applications, or the corrosion process that you just wish would go away.
2: Well, that again, Chloe, could be its own podcast. I feel like um, you know one big thing I would say when I joined Anemic that really opened my eyes was paint isn't paint. You know, a lot of people say paints paint, just it's, it's all the same. And it truly is that when you really see some of what goes into making a coating and the testing and, you know, all the effort that goes into it. I mean, one epoxy is not like the next epoxy. Um, you know, I kind of think, you know, sometimes you, you almost can equate it to baking a cake. There's a, a standard um, recipe to make a cake. you can add things, you can take things away to change it up a bit, and then you have different qualities of ingredients you put in that cake. So there's many combinations. So it's tough for me to say all coatings are all the same. That's one misconception. I would say probably the biggest one. Um, And then, you know, the other might be prep too. Um, You know, some people think I can just coat over it. It's going to be fine. Uh, You know, prep is a big deal. I would say prep for us is such a big deal that can I mean, a lot of our coding failures is sometimes, a lot of times, it's due to prep. Um, so that's another big thing. Um, some people think, you know, I don't, I don't need to grind a floor, for instance, like an acid etch it. It all works the same. That's a myth. Uh, you know, I don't need to blast it. We can just paint over that. Again, that's a myth. Um, there is definitely a reason why you blast something. So, But, again, I would say my biggest one, you know, the misconception is all products are created equal. I mean, they're not. Uh, you do definitely, I found in the coatings world, get what you pay for. Um, and that, that rings pretty true.
1: So if a customer wanted to make sure that they were prepping appropriately, uh, are you the person to talk to? And is that based on the coding or based on the substrate or both?
2: That would be based on a little bit of everything, actually, um, the coding, the substrate, um, you know, and a lot of it too, I will admit, you know I want the best prep possible, but on um, some jobs, the budget just is not there to get the sandblaster out, for instance, or we've done jobs in food plants where we cannot blast. Uh, you know, the food plant is not going to allow it. I understand. So then we have to change what kind of coatings we're gonna we're gonna use. Um, we're gonna have to use some sort of you know marginally prepared, uh, rust inhibitive epoxy coating, for instance, um, because we can blast. We The best we can do is hand tool, for instance. Um, so, yeah, that definitely guides me of which way we're going. Um, you know, and what are the owner's expectations? Um, you know, some, I'll give you an example, some uh, water operators in towns, it's time to paint their tank, and they'll tell us, well, I'm only going to be here five years and retire, so I don't care what you put on it. <laughs> we would change. Oh, okay. Yeah, that does happen. <laughs> We would change what we would suggest, as opposed to a young operator, say in his mid twenties, who knows he's going to be working at the city for a long time. We would probably use, uh, you know, mix, uh Hydroflon, for instance, on the tank, Um that would get you know fifteen to twenty years, great color and gloss. Um, so again, it's just there's a lot of different dynamics that come into play when I'm suggesting a coating, and it's, and it, and it could be the and and it could be the substrate, like I said earlier. Um, Some steel is to the point of, I feel no return. We blast it at all. It's going to blow some holes through it. So there's definitely a lot of different things that uh, come into play when I'm suggesting what we're going to use and how we're also going to apply it and what kind of prep we can do.
0: The reason why I (laughs) laugh is because I don't, I deal with a little bit different customer base. We're dealing with different projects, but I still get the same kind of, uh, inputs from the end customer of like, you know, it, I know what the, this particular project needs for surface prep and a coding, but you'll yeah. get, get the, the explanation of, well, I don't, it's not, not really up to me or I don't really care what it looks like. That's not part of my job. So just get it done as fast and as cheap as you can. It's like, okay, we will, but this is not the right way to do it. <laughs> And, well, then, you know, and then usually it ends up coming back to bite you because somebody else looks at it or looks it over or try, wants to approve it after it's done and they're like wait a minute no this wasn't okay so yeah. that's why i was chuckling
2: well you know and that's funny too because i have to have that life cycle cost discussion with a lot of people when i do a lot of presentations at water conferences about water tanks i always have a lot of slides on life cycle And i mean I get it you can go the cheap route initially and you're going to save the town a lot of money but in a 20-year lifespan you may repaint that tank three times and you know as well as i do the biggest cost to any project is the labor and the prep that is huge the the, the coding cost is minute compared to the other the other two so it yeah I, the life cycle conversation i've had a lot of times with a lot of different people to discuss you know you may pay a little more up front but you won't have to worry about this for 20 years and You know, some water operators will say the same thing. We're discussing coating their tank. I will say, you know, before you retire, how many times you want to deal with this thing? And a lot of them only say one time. So sometimes that conversation sells the the better system itself.
0: So how much, uh, educating are you doing, or let's say, I guess if you're going out and doing presentations, quite a bit then, right? So, I mean, how much of your time is spent actually, maybe I know COVID has messed that up, but pre COVID, um, how much time were you spending?
2: You well, know, pre-COVID, quite a bit. I, w- I was probably doing two to three, oh, maybe four presentations a month, um, and that could be different architectural firms for AIA credits, engineering firms, or different um, water conferences, shows. COVID stopped that in its tracks. Um, I was really, I was really in the rhythm of doing presentations, and I enjoyed doing them. Um, very interactive a lot of times with our architects, engineers, or water operators. Um, You know, face-to-face presentations are definitely different than Zoom presentations. Um, But, yeah, it was great. And then when COVID hit, everybody scattered to their, you know, homes, which understandably. um, But the presentations, I don't think I did one in 2020. I think I did one at the end of 2021. But, I, you know, the good thing is in 2022, I've already did a few of them. In the first month here and got many more lined up for the uh, next few months so people are definitely coming back to their offices you know most of the architectural firms for instance are they're coming back to their offices so definitely hitting the road more doing more presentations educating you know architects engineers water operators on the different coatings and uh, any changes in the market they need to know about
0: so what's kind of when you go to do those presentations do you have like a couple main things that you're trying to Like, are you trying to teach them because they don't know anything about codings, or what's usually your approach?
2: You know, a lot of times my approach, I will admit, when I joined SGA and I had to do my first one for an architectural firm in Omaha, I was scared to death because I really thought that they would grill me up there because a lot of people think an architect or an engineer knows everything, but what I kind of found out is they have to know a little about a lot of things on a project, whereas I had to know a lot about one thing. So it definitely wasn't as bad as I thought. Well, when I do what it's, it's an educational, uh, you know, topic I'll be discussing, whether it be floors, and we'll talk about epoxy floors, and again, some of the prep involved to have a successful project, some of the different products, and usually it's general stuff on different products for a floor, just use an example. And um, yeah, we'll do the life cycle uh, cost discussion as well, you know, if you want to do the cheap route, there's how many times you may expect to redo your floor. Um, But yeah, most of the time I do these things, it's, it's education on the coatings, but most, a lot of it too, is prep and life cycle costs because architects and engineers have to deal with owners who are on a budget and want their job done at a certain, certain price. So they need to know, they need to be able to communicate to an owner, also the life cycle cost discussion as well. So So
0: they're, they're learning from you to, um, to essentially write the spec for the project or may or multiple projects in the future but they're trying like if it's floors for example they're trying mm-hmm. to learn more about that particular area of coding so that way when they are writing specs for projects or um a project in particular then they have at least some sort of idea like this would be a good coding to use and yep. then that way they can put that in there or or make that as an option for the owner essentially
2: Yeah, and I don't, you know, you never expect them to remember the exact product you might talk about, but that's pretty much it, Chase. When you're discussing these coatings, it's just you're throwing some spaghetti at the wall, just get something to stick. You know, you may bring up urethane cements and say, hey, a urethane cement is great if you have to do a secondary containment, or you get you have to do inside a food plant. Um, Just so when they have to do a project that might ring in their in their mind that oh yeah ross talked about this and they'll probably call me and discuss it um you know and not specify maybe some sort of garage floor floor paint for instance um so again it's just general and it is it's a lot of it where would this coating go where would this make sense for this coating to go in, in you know in, in a plant different parts of the plant which you may use in the locker room is definitely going to be different than what you use underneath say a machine press for instance or something so Again, it's it's general generality stuff, but you just want to try to get a few points that really stick in their minds so when that project does come up, at least they give you a call, and then we can revisit in more depth of what products to use.
0: Okay. Do you find it, and if you don't know the answer to this, we'll cut this out, but do you find it interesting that there is not really any secondary education or college degrees a real formal education around coatings anywhere. It seems to all be just by, over time, it's experience or people that have been really experienced at the large painting manufacturers and they're in the labs and stuff. But they're usually are not younger people um, yeah. or architects or engineers. There's no resource for them to go to other than essentially talking to sales rep for paint companies, right? I mean, there's just not a... Whereas, like, when I'm go if like I went to engineering school and I'm an engineer, so if I want to go design something out of metal and make sure it's not going to break, I pull out my engineering books. But there's no coding book for me to go look at and to be like, well, here's my substrate and how long do I want it to hold up for? And so then here's the service prep and the things I need. I I always find that interesting that 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 information just doesn't seem to be out there and it has to go on experience basically.
2: Yeah, that. That surprises me and it doesn't, you know, with, with going into coatings, my, uh, sales manager hired me at PPG. I remember he always had a quote make me laugh even now. He says, nobody, nobody ever chose to go into coding sales or (laughs) coatings. People fall into it. I said, what, Steve, that's very true. I've never met anybody who had grand plans to go into coatings. Well, mostly like, you know, sales or whatever on that part. Mm Um, And, yeah, you know, I've seen very little formal education on it. Um, You know, I think a few tech schools might have a class or two on painting, for instance. Um, But, yeah, there's really not a lot of formal education on, you know, industrial painting and whatever else. It is a lot of just getting in the trenches, down and dirty, and just learning. Um, Surprises me a little bit, but doesn't, like I say, at the same time.
0: Um, This seems so important to me you know because like that's what you end up looking at and when we're talking about the industrial coating side of things it's really important because that's making sure that these big metal structures aren't going to corrode in the long term
2: yeah that always i will agree with you, jace that baffled me always because i agree a electrician's work and a plumber's work you know for instance is hidden in the walls they could do a terrible job or a great job most of the time unless it leaks or shorts out you're never going to know it but a painter, I'll well, use a painter, for instance, his work is seen by everyone. So you definitely would think there should be some education and, uh, you know, even, you know, certification almost to a point, you would think, because, you right. know, electrician have to be certified. But painting and coatings is a little different animal. It's something everybody can try to a point. If, you know, I always say there's a reason why in a big box store, the painting counter is the first thing you see because everybody gives a shot at it. That's a good point. It really is, um, but yeah, I, it would be nice if there was some formal education out there. It really would. Um, I'm back to YouTube or LinkedIn. There are some guys out there that have some pretty good educational videos on painting and coatings, um, and you know, I've watched I've watched quite a few of them. You know, spray cabinets, whatever else, uh, just some of the little tricks of the trade you can pick up on. Um, but again, doing it is where you're definitely going to learn the most doing it because the data page only tells you so much. It really does. Um, Getting out in the field and doing it, you learn so much more. And again, I go to a lot of my customers with problems and just throw it out at them and see, what do you think uh, this could have happened? And uh, again, if you have that level of trust, they will let you know what they think may have happened, which is invaluable. Totally invaluable.
0: That makes sense.
1: In your experience, and I guess, Jace, this would be a question for you too, are are people in the finishing industry willing to share knowledge, or do they tend to be proprietary about their tips and tricks um, just to stay competitive?
2: Um, I'll, I'll go first. I would say in spraying stuff, I found most people are pretty forthright in how they do things. Um, or at least telling you um, other industries, you know, flooring the guys are a little more tight lipped on their tricks of the trade. Um, I don't get a lot of info out of those guys of how they do things, um, but I, I find, and again, most of our customers um, are pretty helpful in telling us, you know, so maybe their sprayer, I put it to this pressure, or I use this tip and it worked really well, or I put this amount of thinner in it and it worked really well. I find people are pretty, pretty open about it
0: i don't really ask those questions but if someone asks me i do not like to give it out because that's i'm just secretive like that so i don't i don't think i've ever given ross a, what told him what tip i'm spraying with something if he had called and asked a question if he i think there's been a few times when you've asked me just general questions about a certain product and i usually give a pretty generic answer yeah.
2: you know what and i don't blame I, I don't blame anybody for that either. Uh, you spent a lot of years and time getting your process dialed down and just to share with someone else. I, I totally understand. So no, I don't, whether you or anybody else, I don't take it personally when it's not shared. So, but yeah, I agree. I agree. You know, if not, if you don't want to share, I, I see the point.
0: So I know that you main, th- this will be a good way to round it out. I know that you, one of your main paints that you sell is for Tanimic. You've talked about them a lot. Are there other, paint companies that you sell for, or that you want to sell for? Like as, as modern coating solutions continues, does, um, does that type of business mean that you start selling more different types of paint or do you kind of, does it mean that you stay towards one area because you know that well,
2: well, we can, you know, be more independent reps. Uh, We can sell anything we want as long as, again, it doesn't compete with Tonemic. So, you know, we couldn't sell Carboline or anything. Okay. But, you know, we can find other things that would complement, you know, Tonemic coatings in a plant or, you know, an OEM facility, for instance. And we can, uh, you know, work something out with that manufacturer and kind of see where it goes. But, again, the majority of our day time uh, is working with Tonemic coatings. And I'll...
0: I asked that because I always liked working with you in the past, and I mainly buy powder now. Is there, is there any potential that you could sell powder someday? Or I don't know of any companies out there that don't sell it for themselves, though. You know what I mean. I don't know that there's very many out there that would hire a, a sales rep to do it.
2: Yeah, the the independent thing is you know coming fewer and more far between. Um, a lot of uh, powder companies, for instance, you are correct, they have their own powder wraps okay Yeah, that's fine one that would be and it's have independent people so it would be pretty tough anymore
0: all right well i guess i just have to buy tenemic from you then
2: <laughs> we'll take
0: it we appreciate
1: it <laughs> thanks so much for your time ross it was uh nice getting to chat
2: yeah thanks guys chloe jace i appreciate it that was actually a lot of fun thank you
0: no problem thanks for coming on and taking some time out of your day it's always good to talk to you. I don't get to talk to you as much as I used to, but I told Chloe, I used to see you all the time when you worked at PPG and you were one of our favorite reps. Cause you always brought us something to eat. So
2: <laughs> it's the fastest way to Jace's heart. I would say food is the way to everyone's heart. So no, I appreciate it guys. I, I really enjoyed this. Thank you. And have a good night guys. Thanks.
0: You too. So again, that was Ross Sudbeck. Um, really good uh, friend over time. I've known him for, ever since I pretty much started working at Kaiser um, when I started purchasing powder that was one of the first reps that I dealt with And uh, we we have a good run going here of um, podcasts with sales reps I feel like right we had Eric Ledger now we had Ross and I think we have a few more coming up um, And it's interesting to get to know their whole, I'm real curious about their path, which is why we asked Eric and Ross about their path. And I'm curious about the, what they think in terms of like the education side of things. And so far that it's been the same, that they both feel like that there isn't a lot of formal education out there, but they feel like it should be. So I'm I'm interested, interested to see if that trend continues as we talk to more sales reps.
1: Yeah, agreed. It's been, um, interesting to compare notes from them for sure
0: yeah it's uh it's interesting that like both so and, and maybe this trends gonna continue but like Eric and Ross both kind of like worked with their dads in something kind of industrious when they were younger you know what I mean like Eric wasn't necessarily exactly painting if I recall right but right. Ross's was so that was interesting interesting to me that he uh, he because it sounded like his dad actually owned a painting company. Interesting that he didn't want to go in and, and take that over and went like the sales rep route. That surprised me, actually.
1: Right. Yeah, because Eric Ledger's dad, if I remember right, was in lumber. Um, yeah. And I'm pretty sure that that was shut down almost against his will. And so I right. wonder if Eric's life would have been different if that hadn't been the case.
0: Yeah, yeah. We'll, we'll see. We got I, we have Dave Thiessen coming up. In the next month mm-hmm. or so, I think, right? Mm-hmm. Yep. So, next
1: week, we've got Matt Nelson from Spray Equipment.
0: So that's a different kind of sales rep. That's more of equipment-based, so that's going to be good. That's going to be a, a different turn. He, he'll be able to give us a different different side of things. We're not going to be necessarily talking about the coating itself. We're going to be more on the tech, technical technician side. So he's going to give us be able to give us a little bit different insight on the training because that's going to be more around like the actual application and spraying and less of the coding performance. So that should be a good one.
1: I'm looking forward to it. Um, In the meantime, we had a comment on TikTok that uh, I thought I could use as my question from social media today. Um, So we posted a video about how if the part surface has been damaged or scratched, for instance, by overzealous grinding or something like that, that that damage will likely show through the powder, uh, because in our experience, that's true. And the comment we got came from a user named Dano the Mano. Um, Their comment was wrong. Lay it evenly. You may have to reshoot, but if you up it to four to five mils, it'll look a hundred times better. Just hope for no orange peel. And so um, I was wondering how you would respond to that.
0: Well, Dano the Mano. Um, I'm going to say that I somewhat can kind of agree with the caveat, but mostly disagree. So, the, the video that we posted was of a car frame that we powder coated in a gloss black. And we, the video kind of showed the frame roll up close. And it sh- when you were looking at it, it looked pretty uneven and kind of, kind of crappy, actually it was done. It was powder coated gloss black and the coating was looked relatively good, but it was following the substrate underneath. So you saw a lot of the grinding marks and things. And so, um, our point is that if you've got really deep gouges and grind marks and pitting that the powder coating pretty much follows that profile it's not ne- not really going to fill that in because we're applying at four you know three to five mils which is only three to five thousandths of an inch and if you've got a really deep crevice you're putting on, you know, you're getting three to five mils there, but you're also getting three to five mils up on the, the peak and the smooth finish of the of the metal. So, like, the coating's just following the topography of the metal. And so, like, the unevenness stays. Everything is coated evenly. Um, so, to me, it's like you gotta make sure that substrate's prepared and smooth before we put coating over it. Dano the Mano is saying that we're wrong um in order to get it to be smooth that we just need to lay it evenly as um applicators and that we should just build way more film and i disagree with that because if we did that still like what i just explained you know the coating is no matter how thick you put it on it's still going to follow the profile of the metal and if you put on 4 to 5 mils everywhere the profile looks exactly the same you just raised it all up four to five mils, but if you do like two or maybe even three coats of powder, you could put on four to five mils in one coat, making sure that didn't orange peel, like he said, and then you could go ahead and take your DA sander out and start sanding down basically the smooth areas, right? Because if you've got a really big divot and you've started to fill that up with powder, you don't want to take any powder out of that. You actually want to sand the powder off of the smooth areas so now you're trying to like actually even out the substrate I guess is what you're saying you're, you're trying to use the powder coating as filler in these voids and so then you're trying to smooth it with a DA you're probably gonna have to do multiple coats of powder in order for that to happen because you're only putting on four to five thousandths at a time you know in a sixteenth a of an inch gouge which is possible in a car frame that's six d six zero thousands there's a huge difference there we're talking four to five thousandths of an inch per coat at the very most and then if you're trying to fill a 60 thousandths gouge I mean do the math that's a lot of powder coating that you got to get in that gouge and and make everything look good so so it's uh in my opinion the best way to make sure it looks good in the end is you got to start with a smooth substrate to begin with and get all the pits and grind marks out and then just powder coat over the top. I don't think it's great practice to to powder coat and then sand, then powder coat again and sand, powder coat again and sand to try to use the powder coating as filler to smooth it out. It's possible. Like if you have a minute scratch, you can fix that. But the video that we are showing was some pretty deep gouging and grinding in a car frame. Does that make sense?
1: How many coats? Yeah, it does. Um, how many coats of powder if you were doing the coat and then sand and then coat and then sand method how many coats of powder do you think you'd get away with before you run into trouble
0: i usually if like let's say we're just having to rework something because something keeps bubbling through or looking wrong we usually don't like to do it more than three times so if we have the initial coat on and we rework it once and it comes out bad we'll usually rework it one more time and then we we pretty much like to stop because it's just, you're getting to the point where you're probably, you're really going to be up against some adhesion issues because most of the time you're fully curing and now you're going to recoat. So you got to do a really good job of sanding because the, the powder is fully cured. So you all you're going to get is mechanical adhesion between the two coats. The two coats are not going to actually chemically mesh together much um, because the first layer is already fully cured. And so adhesion is probably going to be poor. And the more and more you do that, the more chance that you have of it just going to flake off between one of the layers. So I only like to do three coats, which means if you're doing four to five mils, you can only get 15 mils on, which is just, I mean, that's crazy film thickness. You start running into application issues to try and even put it on that thick. If you already have two coats or three coats on, you just, the the part doesn't ground very well anymore. Um, charge builds up on the surface very easily the powder doesn't take evenly it starts to back ionize um so again that all kind of comes back to you need to to do some sort of prep to make sure that substrate is even and smooth if that's the look you're going for for example if if your car is at an auto body shop getting painted and it's an old school car and there's a lot of dents and stuff what do they do they put in body filler Right, they do that first and sand it all smooth. They don't just spray twenty coats of paint on it to to make it smooth. (laughs) They put in filler first, right? And when it comes to powder coating, there may be a couple fillers out there that'll hold up in the oven. I think I've read a little bit about at least one, but I've never tried it. Never really even priced it. Um, And we don't have that at Kaiser, so that would probably be the best solution is some sort of filler that holds up in 400 degrees if you're trying to get rid of some ridiculously deep gouge and like uh, in the side of a car frame that that you want to look really good yeah
1: that makes sense so I know he wasn't talking about powder coating but Ross was talking about that project where there were 60 mils of film thickness Mm -hmm. Um, and so that really what you said about 15 mils being insane for powder that really puts his film thickness and perspective for me. (laughs) Yeah. Uh,
0: I mean, wet paint uh, can get quite a bit higher than, than, than powder. Um, But yeah, 50 is, is, is really thick. So I would say if you're doing, you could be doing a three coat system. Um, and, And when Ross was talking about, I love his quote about the, think of chapstick, not lipstick. You know thinking that we're doing the protection right because a lot of the coatings right. that he deals with even more so than kaiser is even more leaned towards protection you know all of our stuff has a little bit of aesthetics to it because um, it's going to get seen but there are some of the things the coatings that he's selling it's purely to make sure that this whatever doesn't corrode and so um orange peel really doesn't matter at that point and maybe some runs and sags doesn't quite matter at that point or some sort of texture in the coating doesn't matter so some of those coating systems could be actually specified with multiple coats to be 15 to 20 mils um but yeah you're still talking if you're at 60 mils that's still three times that amount but it makes sense if you're just putting layer over layer over layer and i think I think what he was saying was that was an adhesion issue. And it makes sense, right? When you start putting that many layers of paint on and each one after the other is uh, has dried and cured. and So if you're not doing a good enough job of like abrading that surface, because all you can do is get mechanical adhesion, meaning sand it and make it rough so for the next coat of paint to go on. But if you've got 50 mils, who knows, you know, let's just call that five mils per coat, which would be high probably, but so that's 10 coats of paint. So if coat three is peeling away from coat two, like, like you just have so much chance in there between every single one of those coats of adhesion failing, you know what I mean? Right. So like it's likely when you start getting at that thick, you have way more points of failure that could happen?
1: Right. So the moral of the story is prep your surface, um, which is also something Ross talked about how important prep was. Not yeah. only so that it looks good, but also so that it adheres.
0: Yeah, it was good to hear him say that because we—that's kind of one of the thing, one of our pillars that we talk about a lot. That prep's very important, and and he's up against a little bit different um, challenge because he's selling coatings for a lot of different substrates, and each one needs to be prepped differently. And from what I could gather, what he was talking about, it seems like a lot of that stuff's done right out in the field. So the environment's not quite as controlled. At least a a portion of his business seems like it's right out in the field. And so prep work gets a little more challenging in those environments. Probably even more critical in those environments, but, but more challenging to get it done right.
1: That makes sense.
0: All right. Well, do we know who is coming up absolutely next? On Matt Cast. Nelson. Oh, you told from, me Dang it. Yeah,
1: sorry. Yep. And he's bringing a rep from, is it GEMA or GEMA? I've asked you this.
0: We're going to have to have them clarify it. I would say GEMA, but okay. I think other people say GEMA. So they're going to have to clarify that for us.
1: So we'll talk about equipment.
0: yep So that'll be KZCast episode 21. So stay tuned for that. If you have any questions, let us know. I, we would like to answer questions at the end of the podcast like we always do but sometimes it's hard to find questions so um, email us or comment or message us and we will answer your questions
1: and we'll see you next week
0: hey is everything working good for you you need anything anything broke? anything leaking Just make sure we stay on track with the yellows and everything will be fine. Little things lead to big things. We stay late tonight. We need to get this job finished up. Overall, I think everybody's doing a great job. Keep up the good work. It's getting hot out, so make sure you're drinking plenty of water. I know this job's been difficult. Everybody's getting frustrated. If we can't do it, nobody else can. That's the reason why the job's here, because nobody else could get it figured out. Just keep working at it. Don't get frustrated. We'll keep collecting data, taking good notes, and we'll get it figured out. Does anybody else have anything?